You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Good morning and welcome everybody. On the behalf of the New York Encounter, I'm Marcy Stockman and I will be moderating this event. I'd like to sincerely thank Benedictine College for sponsoring this presentation. I'll read the bios now of our speakers, but full bios are available on the website. To my left, Sarah Heminger is a social entrepreneur, scientist, and ice dancer who co-founded Thread with her husband, Ryan, in 2004. In 2010, she received her PhD in biomedical engineering from the John Hopkins University. She also received the prestigious Seibel Scholars Award for outstanding work in the field of technology and engineering. Sarah received her undergraduate degree from the John Hopkins University in 2002, and prior to pursuing her PhD, she worked as an engineer for Medtronic ExoMed. J.D. Flynn, is the editor-in-chief of Catholic News Agency and a canon lawyer. He has published op-eds and essays in the Washington Post and New York Post, First Things, and elsewhere. He's an advocate for people with disabilities and for the full inclusion of children with disabilities in Catholic education. He's a husband and the father of three, including two children with disabilities. Matteo Stolman is a software engineer working in the real estate tech industry. He's the oldest of eight siblings and the father of three. So we'll begin with Sarah. Good morning. When I was in high school, my best friend Ryan's family unit was completely shattered when his mom was in a car accident and became temporarily paralyzed. She ended up losing her job. They lost their home. They moved from suburbia into Section 8 housing. And as a result, she became very depressed and addicted to painkillers and then began selling them in order to support her own drug habit. This all coincided with Ryan's transition into high school, and so he ended up missing more than 30 days of school and failing his freshman year. But there was this incredible group of teachers who didn't just say, hey, you can do better. They would actually show up and give him rides to school and help him with his homework and make sure that the heat and the water stayed on in his home. And that radically changed his life. It made it easier to decide to go to school when he didn't have to take three buses. It was a lot easier to choose to go to school when he was not hungry. And it was a lot easier to go to school when he had clean clothes that he could wear and not be afraid of being teased. By his senior year, he had become a straight-A student and varsity athlete and was on his way to the United States Naval Academy. And yes, later married me. In 2004, Ryan and I founded Thread to harness the power of relationships to bring people together across lines of difference. At the time, I was a graduate student and was quite lonely. It was a super competitive environment. I'm an extreme introvert and had trouble making friends. 
And what I didn't understand explicitly at the time, but do now, is that for me it triggered a trauma from my own childhood. I grew up in a very religious uh, community, and when I was eight years old, my father found out that the pastor of our church was misusing church funds. When he revealed this, instead of firing the pastor, they decided they would shun our family. So from the time I was eight to the time I was 16, the adults, the children, no one was permitted to speak with me, interact with me, even my own cousins, aunts, and uncles. And so Thread came about not because I was trying to help anyone other than really myself. I wanted to find a place to belong, and it dawned on me that maybe there were other extraordinary individuals like Ryan that were in unthinkable situations, and that maybe together we could find this sense of belonging. So what does Thread do? Well, we enroll ninth grade students who rank academically in the bottom 25% of their class. Um, the average GPA of our cohorts is around 0.9 on a 4.0 scale. Once young people are in Thread, we make a 10-year commitment. Uh, we lovingly joke it's longer than your average American marriage. Um, <laughs> and each young person is given four extended family members um, that do whatever it takes to support them from rides to school to refurbishing their house to helping them with their homework. The way to think about it is if you would do it for your own child, we do it for ours. And then to ensure that the Thread families can really focus on building their relationships, we also provide program spaces where they can do things like community service, go camping, um, spaces where both the young people and the volunteers can hone their skills, find their passions, and figure out where they fit into the world. We also have Thread collaborators that provide pro bono expertise in things like preventing evictions or how to access healthcare, again, so that the Thread family can focus on their relationships. So I wanted to share with you about a relationship that started for me 16 years ago with a young woman named Judy. If you look in the upper left, she's the one who looks really angry. <laughs> um, Judy and I have a lot in common. Uh, she was also a severe and still is introvert. So when I would give her rides to school, you can imagine it was like the most awkward silence ever <laughs> in the beginning. This is us on our very first camping trip together. There was, um, I don't know what I was thinking, I took 15 young people camping in January where the beginning of the trip had eight inches of snow on the ground. But this was really the beginning of our relationship. We both hated the cold. Um, and that's where we started to form our conversations. So over time, it was really hard. Um, it took a lot of work, but we eventually got to know one another. And Judy not only ended up graduating from Dunbar High School, but she ended up going to Wesley College where she received her degree in nursing. Um, and so I remember sitting in the auditorium when she was getting ready to go up and receive her degree. This is, she now has her master's, so this was her first degree. Um, and I, I said, what type of nurse do you think you're going to become? And she said, you know, I've decided that I'm going to become a mental health nurse. And it dawned on me, you know, the reason Judy wasn't going to school in those early days wasn't because she didn't want to or because she didn't want to succeed. It turned out that she had been so badly abused by a family member to the point of near death on two occasions that she was just so severely depressed and suffering from anxiety that on many days she physically could not get out of bed. And so fast forward years later when she had been able to achieve so much and she said, 
of course I'm going to be a mental health nurse because with every other disease, cancer, dementia, your family flocks to you. But when you have a mental health disorder, everyone runs away. And I want to be the one person who's left when no one else is. And so we think about who is the pipeline of leadership in Baltimore City, where THREAD is located, or in our country. It really is young people like Judy. The interesting thing is she is very special, but she is actually not unique. So while young people in Baltimore City who have GPAs of less than 1.0 during their freshman year, on average only 6% graduate in four years, in THREAD that number is 85%. And of the young people, and remember we never let go of a single young person, so in our 16 year history we've retained every student we have ever enrolled during that 10-year period. And of the alumni, 83% have received a four or two-year college degree or certification. So as our alumni continue to excel, we thought about what, does, what could this be in the bigger scheme of things? And so THREAD has set out this very ambitious vision where we plan to enroll 7.5% of the entire freshman class across the school district in Baltimore City. Getting to that capacity would mean that, yes, we would move the needle citywide on the high school graduation rate. But more importantly, what that would mean is we would be weaving together relationships across lines of race, class, religion, with over 20,000 Baltimoreans thinking about their students, their families, our volunteers, their families, collaborators, donors, staff, board, all together, we would represent 5% of the entire adult population in the city. And so that is the movement that we are working to build. And so as we've looked back and said, well, how did we get to this stickiness in our relationships um, in a world that feels and is often so divided? We've realized that for us, success, it really comes down to how you define success. Do you define it as simply the, the young person graduating from high school? Or do you define it as, in thread, thinking about it as we are all on a journey and how do we all grow and how do we all change. So the key to building these relationships across lines of difference, when I think about it, it's if we want our young people to go to school, then if we say we're gonna take them to school, we need to show up and take them to school. If we want young people to never give up, then we have to actually never give up on them. And we have to move from this place of you matter, which in reality is such a low bar, to I need you. And that is what we do. When I think about the rides to school with Judy, often in those early days we would debate things um, like fashion, mostly her making fun of my rock ports, which I find very comfortable, um, and she found atrocious. Um, we would also sometimes talk about you know, her mental health challenges and the fact that I've lost three family members to suicide. Um, later in life, ironically, we both very much struggle to have children. And so sometimes um, it might be in one another's homes or in a coffee shop, but we would just sit there silently um, because after suffering such loss, there was just really nothing to say. When I thought it, I had it kind of figured out in my relationship with Judy, uh, three and a half years ago, uh, I was in a very bad car accident and had a head injury. Um, 
it was so severe that I lost 30 pounds, and don't worry, I've gained it all back, um, and was nauseous all the time, had daily migraines, and one day I was just driving home from work and had a massive panic attack. And I had no idea of what to do. Uh, I didn't even know what was happening. I had never had one before. Um, and I was terrified because my father's grandfather had just passed away and he needed to travel home to Indiana for the funeral. And the idea of being left alone, oh, by the way, Judy and I both did end up having children. <laughs> this is Evie and Linda, who consider themselves sisters. Um, and so Ryan's about to go to a funeral. I don't know what's happening in my body. And I'm like, I can't be left alone with this munchkin. What am I going to do? And that's the funny thing, like when you hit those moments, um, like the one I was in where I felt embarrassed and humiliated, it, it wasn't that I didn't know a ton of people, but it was who did I feel comfortable calling in that moment of deep and incredible vulnerability. And so of course I called Judy, who came over to the house, um, sat with me uh, for the entire weekend, our daughters played, and it turned out to be one of the most beautiful experiences of my entire life, um, was spending that time with her. And so, when we think about, you know, just all of the, the challenges that we go through, um, it really becomes the person who in that moment could make me feel seen and understood really was Judy. Um, and so I think in Thread, we think about how do we get to that place with 20,000 people? And that takes a different type of work, an intentionality around three things that we think of as a critical piece of our framework, structure, spaces, and norms. So if everyone is on this journey of personal growth, and for us, we view that that, that really has to do with our relationship with, with ourselves and with one another. Um, but we must acknowledge that structures, whether it's the family structure or um, structure within a company or within a church, um, structures define who you're initially in relationship with. And so what we find is that if you want adults to be on this journey, so if you want to have a volunteer go and pick a young person up for school, it might be six months before anyone answers the door. So if that volunteer is expected to go and knock on that door every morning for six months and be rejected, they need a coach too. So in Thread, those four volunteers are coached by what we call a head of family, who is also a volunteer. Heads of family are coached by grandparents. What it does is it creates a culture where everyone is modeling what it is to grow and change. Um, and then when we come together in these relationships, there are certain norms, um, oftentimes, we come into spaces as humans um, and we default to a certain set of norms depending on the context. In Thread, we're very intentional that the norms dictate how we show up in relationships and they reflect the diversity of the Thread community. The first of these is showing all the way up. Um, so do you recognize your own inherent value? Do you understand how to communicate, though, that you can simultaneously hold that value and your room for growth? Um, are you physically and authentically present in the interactions? Do you challenge yourself to push through discomfort? These are all things that actually much of the way our society is built has encouraged us not to do. It's to um, put our best face forward and not allow for that vulnerability. The second is failing forward. So, 
being involved in that iterative change process is about having the ability to speak the truth, but speak the truth with kindness. We call it calling a thing a thing. Uh, I was sitting at breakfast this morning, and the person sitting next to me noticed that I had a crumb on my cheek, and he was kind enough to point it out. But think about how many times you might go through lunch and you have spinach between your teeth and no one tells you. Um, in Thread, we're all about, if you can't tell someone about the spinach, how are you going to tell them the thing they really need to hear when you're in that deep and intimate relationship? And then it's also about sharing how you've changed. So in order for people to re-norm what it is to be vulnerable in that way, you have to be willing to share your journey. And in this world where we have a range of privilege and power, the more privilege and the more power you have, the more that we believe that you need to share that journey in a way that becomes contagious for others. The third is treating relationships as well. So thinking, um, you know, understanding that our ability to thrive is inextricably linked. Um, this individualistic um, approach, uh, to, it is so destructive. In Thread, it's really understanding that everyone has value. We're not a group of haves trying to swoop in a group of have-nots. We're family that leans on one another um, and shares moments of joy and of trial all at the same time. And it's also about meeting people where they're at. Um, so it's understanding that we're all at different places in our journey and learning how to meet each individual where they're at, but intentionally crossing those lines of difference. And the final one is learning from all voices, um, making the table accessible, assuming that people have the best of intentions. I would say that this is the one that be is hardest, I think, for most people, is if you just started every um, feeling of conflict and going to a place of that the other person had the best of intentions and trying to understand it from their point of view, um, it would become, it becomes so much easier to have those sticky relationships. So what does this actually look like in Thread? Well, we use spaces to reinforce these norms, and I'll leave you with just one uh, quick example. This is our holiday party. Uh, we love, love, love to gather in groups, and again, spaces are a way to re they allow you an opportunity in groups to reinforce those norms. So that might be after school threat hours or the camping trip. How the adults are showing up in those spaces sends a very clear message to our young people about their value and their place in our community. So this is Krishna. He's a member of our board of directors. And, and if you'll recall, um, you know, thinking about power and privilege within a community or organization, a board of directors is where a lot of that often lives. And so our board um, at our holiday party, instead of having a young person stand up and share vulnerably their journey and how they had grown and how they had changed, instead Krishna stood up and shared his. He shared how he had been sober from drugs and alcohol for the previous six years because of the relationships that he had in Thread. And you can imagine the young people in the audience, there are like six, seven hundred people there, were just like, <laughs> because you look at Krishna, he's now the managing director of a private equity firm. He doesn't have to choose to share that story publicly. And for those sitting in the audience, it was this moment of, oh, maybe I'm not so far off if, from where you are, and we have a lot more in common than maybe I realized. Um, so this was a way for him to show all the way up, for him to be vulnerable, and for him to message to our entire community, but most importantly, our young people, just how much we need them. And then this is later in the same party. Uh, again, thinking about how do you utilize spaces. Um, 
we wanted to get everyone on the dance floor. Dancing is something that if you can really get everyone moving, it's hard to do. I'm sure many of you have been to really bad wedding receptions where it didn't happen. And if you've been to a great one, you know how awesome it can be. But when you have 700 people of all ages, races, you know, you have many different music preferences. And so we had um, African drummers come out and start. And, and who might you guess jumps on the dance floor first? The young people, right? So they get out there, they're dancing, and there's like this extreme awkwardness for the rest of us um, because no one was jumping in. And then came Sean. So I don't know if you can see Sean. His back is to, he has a blue and white plaid shirt. He's a middle-aged white man. And he just said, screw it. And he just <laughs> jumps in the middle of the dance floor um, with a teenager and they were pretending to jump rope. And it broke the whole thing wide open because the minute Sean did it, everyone else felt a freedom to do it. His willingness to put himself out there and be vulnerable and maybe look a bit silly, which he didn't look silly at all, it turns out, um, it changed it for everyone else. And so all of a sudden you found this dance floor was filled with everyone, and yet there was still one group not on the dance floor. It was the older people in the room. So what did we do next? we played the electric slide. <laughs> Why? Because everybody loves the electric slide, all ages. So just, you know, what I would say is as you're moving through um, space, what we've learned in our family is just, it is about um, creating spaces and leveraging structures and having a set of norms that really allows people to feel loved, feel like they truly belong. Um, and when you think about just this incredible time in our country's history, this immense um, division and strife, we need to find a way to rediscover the thing that is most important, which is one another. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. That was uh, really beautiful, and I do not wish to follow it. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, I am here. And um, <laughs> I, I, Sarah was here to tell you about this extraordinary thing that she has done, which is beautiful, and thank you so much for sharing it. And I am um, not here to share with you uh, about anything that I have done, um, which thanks be to God, because I have not done anything worthy of sharing about. Um, but I am here to share with you uh, at least about a set of experiences that I have had and, um, and a set of experiences in my own family and, and, and the experience of my own life having been transformed um, by sort of unexpectedly knowing and loving uh, people with disabilities. Uh, I, have, uh, I have three children. Um, two of them are adopted, and, and the two adopted children have Down syndrome. 
And uh, they, they, I do not have them on purpose, um, which is to say uh, we are not the sort of good people who adopted children with Down syndrome because we wanted to do something nice for the world or for people with disabilities. Um, we're the sort of people who adopted children um, because we couldn't have children and wanted to have children, and these were the children that showed up. Um, these were the children that God brought to us uh, unexpectedly. Uh, we met our son Max in the hospital uh, when he was 10 days old. Our, our very best friend, Sister, uh, Sister Mercy, who's here today, was, was with us on the day that we met our son Max in the hospital. And um, it was, for me, the first time I had ever met in a meaningful way any person with disabilities. Um, maybe like a lot of you um, who are, uh, well, I'm old, um, maybe like a lot of you who are also old, um, you did not probably grow up with the experience of having people with disabilities in your classroom or even in your school, perhaps. Um, I knew one person with a disability growing up, and he was a man in our town who uh, was intellectually disabled and rode his bike around town and um, kids were sort of scared of him and we made up urban legends about him but we didn't know anything about who he actually was. We hadn't encountered anything about him at all. And that was my sum, the sum total of my experience of persons with disabilities when I met my son Max who was you know, just six pounds of a baby with uh, a lot of wires and, and, and oxygen cannula and, and monitors attached to him. Um, we took Max home once we could get some of that uh, crap off of him, and, uh, and we started to sort of uh, learn what it was to be parents and also learn what it was to know people with disabilities. And less than a year later, we got a phone call from our adoption agency. Uh, the, the call, it was a Thursday, and the social worker called us and said, um, a woman came to the agency today, she'd come that day, and she's going to have a baby on Sunday. And uh, the baby has Down syndrome. And this woman is looking for a family who already knows something about Down syndrome and is devoutly Catholic. And do you know anyone? And <laughs> I feel like I can say this uh, here, and I thought, shit. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I called my wife, and I said, uh, I said, do we know anyone? And she said, well, we don't have any plans on Sunday. So, um, <laughs> so we... Um, so we went to the hospital, we, we had to like, um, we, adoption isn't free, so we had to like, you know, beg, borrow, and steal like 20 grand in about five minutes, and, which was good to know that we could do that if we needed to. Um, but then uh, that Sunday, we went to the hospital and we met our daughter, Pia Therese. Um, and, um, and knowing and loving those children has been transformative for me, and it has taught me a lot about um, myself, about my relationship um, to, to God the Father, and, um, and about what family life is and what it's for. So I, I want to tell you a little bit about that, but to do that, I just want to tell you a little bit about my kids. Um, because people with disabilities aren't sort of a, a category of persons who are all the same. My kids, who both have the same diagnosis, trisomy 21, couldn't be more different from each other. So let me tell you about my son, Max. My son, Max, is a beautiful boy. He has almond-colored eyes and a mop of blonde hair and a smile. We call it his goofy smile. That is disarming and irresistible and, and, and a source of joy. Um, my son, Max, is intuitive and kind. He's also nervous about things that he doesn't understand, and he doesn't understand a lot of things. My son, Max, approaches the world cautiously. Um, he delights in the joy of other people. At school, at recess, he stands on the sideline while his, his, his friends, his classmates, 
play football and he cheers for every play. He cheers as much for a fumble or an incomplete pass as a touchdown. They're all the same to Max. He's cheering because their boys are there and they're alive and he's glad to be a part of it. But if you ask Max if he wants to play, which the boys do because they love him and they're good to him, he looks at you as if you're crazy. And he says, no way. Be careful, Max. Max is careful about everything, and be careful and careful, guys, is his motto. Um, he's also slight. Max is the skinniest person who I know. Um, he doesn't take after his dad. Um, he, Max is actually the skinniest person who I've ever seen in real life. I can count his ribs and his vertebrae, um, and again, as you can see, that's not a family trait. Um, I'm always worried that he's gonna break a hip, um, but he's careful, so that's good. Um, but Max is skinny because he hardly, he hardly eats anything, ever. It's hard for Max to hold food in his mouth. In addition to Down syndrome, or as a consequence of Down syndrome, Max has a host of challenges related to, um, related to, sensory, related to his senses. He experiences everything that he senses, everything that he touches or tastes or feels more intensely than most of us do. Everything he hears, he hears at a volume that's so much louder than the way that we hear it. So that Max walks around a lot of the day like this, especially when dad is talking because I am so damn loud. It's hard for Max to hold food in his mouth. It's hard for him to put clothes on his back. The textures can be too much for him sometimes. There are three or four things that Max can wear. Um, he has a mop of hair because it's impossible for my son Max to endure a haircut. To endure a haircut, I have to lay on top of him putting all of my body weight, which is substantial, on his little body weight while my wife cuts his hair and talks him through it and gives him candies and plays Curious George. It is a show for my son Max to have a haircut. Max, Max is not free. He teeters on the edge of freedom. There are ways in which Max is free. There are ways in which Max is full of joy and full of life. And there are ways in which Max is um, encumbered by his own experience with reality, but overwhelmed by the reality that he encounters. Max loves his siblings and his mom and his friends and his school. He also, and this is weird, he loves the dryer. Um, Max something about the tumbling of the clothes is, is calming to Max. So when Max has had too much of the world, he goes to the dryer and he puts a couple of things on and he turns it on and he crouches in front of it and he just watches. And, and, and sometimes it's all that he can do for 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And Max loves the dryer so much and there's so much he doesn't understand about the world that he thinks because he likes watching the dryer, he'll like being in the dryer. And so more than once, I've caught Max convincing his sister to turn the dryer on once he climbs in and I've had to run in at the very last minute before the kid gets fried in the dryer. And I can't tell my wife about that because she'll kill me. Um, <laughs> what kind of person lets his son <laughs> go inside the dryer? Um, Max is my beautiful and loving and generous and simple and struggling son. And what I've learned from Max, what I've seen from Max is that no amount of his own efforts, no amount of my own efforts can set Max free from the things that he struggles with. What I've learned about Max is that only grace and a long sustained application of love can set Max free from some of those things. Let me tell you about my daughter, Pia. My daughter, Pia, has a pair of pigtails that bounce on the back of her head whenever she moves, which is always. My daughter, Pia, is always moving, and so her pigtails are always bouncing. They're, um, 
my wife wouldn't like me to say this, but um, because Pia is always moving, those pigtails are often um, knotty rat tails of lollipops and marshmallows and mud and substances that I don't want to know about bouncing on her head and on our furniture and wherever else Pia is. Pia doesn't walk anywhere. She jumps and she tells you to jump. And if you don't jump, she gets mad at you and she insists that you jump and then she pushes you until you jump. Um, Pia is inquisitive and kind and funny. And not like little kid funny, like parents say their kids are funny, but they're not. My daughter Pia is really funny. She has great timing. She's, she's, she's funny. Um, and I get in trouble all the time because the girl can make a joke and get out of damn near anything. And I will let her out of damn near anything because she's funny. Um, Pia is often covered, as I said, in something sticky from head to toe that I can't quite identify. But Pia is also covered in scars. Across her chest and her back are little nicks and scarred zigzags. There are evidence of scores of procedures that she has earned, scars that she has earned, spending a lot of years battling two different diagnoses of cancer. Pia is a miracle. Um, she shouldn't be alive. Uh, on, on five days after Pia was born, uh, in the middle of the night, she had two heart attacks. And doctors rushed in and, and saved her life. We were completely helpless. The only reason those doctors saved her life is because Pia was at the hospital. And the only reason Pia was at the hospital is because we had checked her in that afternoon because that morning she had been diagnosed with a kind of leukemia. Um, Pia is alive because of the cancer diagnosis that she has spent a very long time fighting. She should have died that night. Um, she should have died other times in her life. She spent um, most of three years altogether battling different diagnoses of leukemia. Pia has been on the verge of death. We have watched the color and the life drain from her body. But our daughter Pia is alive. And in some ways that's enough. My daughter Pia is a witness to the fact that life is a gift. And whether she knows that intellectually, which I don't think she does, or she just intuits it, my daughter Pia is determined to spend the gift of that life in joy. She's a witness to a life well lived. My children are beautiful and a source of joy for me, and a source of life for me, and a source of conversion for me. Um, but they're also uh, invisible. Not so much here um, among people uh, of the movement and their friends who are determined to see life as a gift itself and determined to encounter reality. But in so many places we go, my children are invisible. They live on what Pope Francis calls the existential peripheries. And so they're either not seen at all or they're infantilized. They're made into a sort of stereotype about Down syndrome that has to do with being happy all the time and being a sort of mascot um, for life and has nothing to do with the person. My children are not mascots. Um, well, sometimes they dress up like mascots, but that doesn't really fit here. Um, my, my children are, are not mascots, they're persons. They live in reality. And um, having them in our family, being a family with them, has been um, transformative with me because it's invited me to see um, the person, the gift of the person in a new way. So um, 
there are sort of three things that I have learned or I have seen um, that have been um, made manifest to me by my knowing and loving my children that are about family life, which is what I'm asked to talk about that I thought I would mention. And the first is that family is or can be um, the, 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 place, the, the place that defeats the lies of technocracy. Um, the lies that we hear and endure and often integrate into our understanding of ourselves in the world without even realizing it. The lies that say that our value comes from what we do. Um, that a successful life is a life of something called a contribution to, um, uh, to our common welfare, that it has to do with something that I make or produce. Um, the lie that of radical individualism, the lie that says that um, I am a person who finds my happiness by finding sort of the things that uh, fulfill or, or interest me apart from these other people who are in my life, the radical individualism that says I can do it by myself, the, 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 the atrocious sort of American mythology of the man who has pulled himself up from his, by his bootstraps. My children have bootstraps on their rainbow boots and they can't pull their boots up, let alone themselves, and I see that. And, and I see that this idea that most of us have, that most of us carry, that I myself carried for so long, that my value, even to God, has to do with sort of what I do for, um, for the kingdom or the way that I contribute or whether I'm smart enough and erudite enough and cosmopolitan enough and clever enough. And no, my children are none of those things. Um, and in family life, we've encountered um, the unity that comes not from what we do, but from simply being together and, and, and seeing one another as persons. Uh, in the Christian life, most of us are infected to one degree or another with the heresy of Pelagianism. Pope Francis keeps saying this to us. Most of us think that we'll go to heaven because we've done enough good things for God in, in one way or another. Um, most of us think even that the sacramental life is a sort of a, a set of checklists that will be okay with God when we fulfill the set of checklists. And the sacramental life is essential to our, to our salvation. But what God is after is intimacy, is real unity with us. And what saves us is not the things that we do. We only participate in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And I've learned that watching my children who can't really do anything by themselves, who can't get dressed by themselves or go to the bathroom by themselves or, or um, put themselves to sleep or eat by themselves or, or um, be left alone with their brother because they'll beat the shit out of him. Um, I've learned, I've, I've, I've learned that. Um, John Paul says, uh, John Paul II in Familiaris Consortio says that the relationship between family members should be guided by the law of free giving. And most of us in our technocratic society are infested with the idea of transactionalism. Even in our family life, I do for you what you do for me. Our marriages are infected with the idea of transactionalism. I did the dishes, so you owe me a kiss. Um, even if we don't say it, we, th we, we think it sometimes, right? Um, we think sort of, we, we keep in our minds a scorecard of how we're doing with our spouses, of how we're doing with our children, of how we're doing with our boss, of how we're doing with the Lord. And it, if we start to see that the, some of the Lord's most beloved people are people who won't make any marks on the scorecard, we start to realize that those those things have nothing to do with our real worth, and the only thing we can give is ourselves freely. So related to that, um, what I have learned is that vulnerability and, and even weakness, and perhaps even especially weakness, um, is the locus uh, of, of authentic communion with another person. And this has been the thing that has most transformed my, my own relationship to God the Father. 
my children really um, need a lot. There are so many things that they can't do for themselves, and, and sometimes they labor under the illusion that they do things for themselves. I do like 95% of it, and then they do the last you know, step, and then they boast all day to me that they did it by themselves. Myself, my daughter said, myself, when she hasn't done it by herself, right? Um, but most often, my children have to come to me more often than I have to come to other people and say, help. I can't do it. They, they pick up their shoes, they want to put their shoes on, and they have to come to me every day and say, Dad, help. My son wanted to take off his sweater the other day because it was too warm, and he sort of fumbled around with it for a few minutes and got frustrated and had to say it again. Dad, help. Dad, help. Dad, help. And most of us are ashamed to have to go to someone to ask for help. And most of us, even with regard to God the Father, we sort of want to ask for help in a very generalized way. We sort of want to say, Father, bless us. Father, be with us. But the, the locus of intimacy for me and my children, the thing which gives me the most opportunity to be in their life, to love them, is when they come to me with something that they just can't do and say, Dad, help. And I delight in that. I'm so grateful for that. And I've realized how much God the Father is waiting for me to come to him, not with shame, not with humiliation, but with trust, that every time I say, Father, help, the Lord is delighted that I've come to him, that we have this new opportunity for intimacy and unity. This is true in human relationships and so much more true I've found in our relationship with the Lord. The third thing that I'll say that I've learned um, and that I hope all of us are learning in one way or another is that family without mission is dead. Um, we have a sense, I think those of us who are living the Christian life um, in, in the context of a family, that our job as parents um, is, to, uh, is to teach our children a set, of, uh, a set of truths, right? To convey to them a set of truths uh, about, uh, about God and ourselves and about the universe. And, um, and, and we can, in, in that sense, we can become very, uh, we can become very insular. We can become, if the family is the domestic church, we can become sort of caught in the sacristy of the domestic church in the same way that Francis says that the whole church can be caught in the sacristy. We can have the idea that, um, that our family, that our mission as parents is our children, um, to form our children, to educate our children, and we can lose sight of the fact that our family has a mission into the world. Our family doesn't exist um, as an end in itself in the sense of a sort of a closed system. That if I want to teach my children the Christian life, uh, I have to teach my children what it is to go out. Um, I have to not only tell them about it, but I have to model for them and give them opportunities and invite them into opportunities um, to, pro to, to encounter other people and um, to proclaim in word or deed the kingdom and then to invite um, other people to accompany us in the kingdom. And, and, and every family has precisely that mission. Um, when John Paul II talks about uh, the mission of the family and Familiaris Consortio, Pope Francis picks this up too. Um, the idea of our family identity is the way that our family is living to proclaim the kingdom. And so often I think we can sort of get lost in the sense that in our house this is the way we live, but we can put up walls, um, we can sort of be, allow ourselves to become um, uh, withdrawn, we can talk perhaps maybe publish books about a sort of strategic withdrawal from the world. But Christians don't strategically withdraw from the world, Christians plunge into the world. And the Christian family needs to do the same thing, and for each of us that looks different, which means that the Christian family needs to discern what is it that God is calling us to, what are the things that God has, what are the doors that God has opened us to, um, what are the unique sort of set of circumstances um, by which we may proclaim and witness to the gospel um, in a way that's different than any other. And the good thing about that is it's not just an imperative, it's the source of life. Um, for, for our family, um, 
the, the set of things to which it's become clear that God has called us to, which is um, providing uh, hospitality and becoming a place of prayer and conversation with other families of disabled people, advocating for um, inclusion of disabled people in Catholic schools, helping to facilitate that and train teachers and, and school administrators in, in a variety of schools to do that. All of those things are inclusive of all of us. They involve all of us. They, um, they, um, uh, they require something of all of us, but they also give life to all of us, and they've become a source of unity for us. Our apostolic identity um, ought to be, as a family, um, the source of our unity and the source of our identity. And if that's not the case, sort of knowing a set of propositions about faith, I don't think is going to be sustaining for anybody. Um, most of us know people who know a set of propositions about faith that they don't live and in which they don't find life. So those three things, that the family is the locus of, uh, of the defeat of technocracy, um, that vulnerability is the locus of intimacy, and that the family exists for mission are things that I've learned from my children, but mostly I just um, wanted to introduce you to them because for me they have been a source of great joy and, um, and a reminder to look for, um, for the meaning um, and, and, and the encounter um, with each person because each one of us, I think, is um, longing to be loved and longing to have intimacy as much as my children do, even if many of us are better at hiding it. So thank you. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded, and as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. Thank you, Sarah, JC, Marcy, New York Encounter. Um, I apologize in advance, but I'm nowhere near as good of a speaker, so I'll mostly be reading from my notes. I was asked to share the experience of growing up in my family and how that has shaped my life. For those of you who don't know me, I am the oldest of eight children, but there was never a year that we didn't have someone else living in the house with us. Whether it was exchange students, PhD students, guests, you name them, they've spent time at our house. I tried to put together a count for this talk and quickly gave up. It's no exaggeration to say that it was 100 people over the years. We used to say a prayer every evening, listing mommy and daddy, Mateo, and so on, the kids' names. Uh, for a few years, we kept the tradition alive and recited the litany of all those who had stayed with us in the past, but it didn't take much for that list to become too long to manage. So we resorted to mentioning just those who were living with us at the time. With all the chaos you might imagine in a house with so many people under one roof, dinner was always a moment of great importance. There were usually about 15 people at dinner. If the table was only set for eight, we would all comment surprised, where is everyone? <laughs> Most nights, in addition to the usual people living at home, we had guests over for dinner. With all those people at the table, the most important rule at the table was one conversation. My parents were strict about this rule. So typically, while my mother interrogated our guests with her total lack of holding back in her line of questioning, and my father prepared his thoughts on what would become the heated debate of that evening, we children mostly listened. We had astronomers, bishops, friends from Italy, and of course, family members from our community, family friends from our community. The conversation around the dinner table was almost always guaranteed to be captivating, to the point that even my friends growing up 
would love to come over to participate in Stolman dinners. There was something unique about that way of staying together over dinner that was truly appealing to us. We found ourselves interested in things and people more than in other settings. I mentioned an astronomer coming to visit. He told us all about his work and the study of the stars. As I listened, I waited for the inevitable question from my father, who never missed a chance to challenge our guests on what they were saying. He said, but isn't this all a waste of time and money? What is the point when I need to put food on the table? I remember being stunned at this man's response as he retorted without hesitation, but what is the point of putting food on the table if we cannot ask ourselves about the stars? <laughs> Personally, I've never been the kind of person that is particularly mesmerized by the stars. I took pride in myself for being a supremely practical person, but this response cut deep for me as a kid because it went so far beyond the transactional practicality of life we are taught. Because even in those dinners, I knew there was much more that I wanted than just to put food in my mouth. Over and over again, my mother and father invited people to dinner, not just to eat, but to share a passion for life and to follow those around them that had this same passion. When I was younger and I would get sent to bed, I would often hide around the corner on the stairs, listening to them talk to their friends that had come over for dinner. I remember being blown away by the level of friendship they shared with these people. It was clear how much they depended on these friendships. It's shocking as a kid to see people you look up to so much express this dependence and asking. In this way, I grew up to see my parents in a different way than many of my friends. My parents were shaped by a relationship with everything around them, by an infinite curiosity about everyone. It was clear to us that this relationship was necessary to their identity, that they invited people because everyone and everything was fascinating to them. Everything was an opportunity to learn a bit more, to be challenged a bit more, and to discover that life was beautiful. We're taught to avoid the word judgment today, but growing up in our house, the insistence on judgment was far more important than most any rule. I remember something that was said to me one time by one of the many people we hosted at our house. We were in the middle of a basketball game. He was about 10 years older than us. He stopped in the middle of the game and he said, isn't it amazing that he loves our freedom more than our happiness? The relationship with my parents was exactly like this. For my parents, the insistence that I use my freedom to judge my life, to take, my ser to take seriously the question of my happiness in front of everything was the most important thing. This is a radical position. I mean, I don't understand it fully. You may be thinking to yourself that it's quite obvious in a sense, but I don't mean it lightly and the consequences are not small. For example, I started smoking when I was 14. To my parents' obvious dismay, but that did not stop, but they did not stop me. I don't know if I could or would allow my children the same thing, but the radicality of this point is not the question of smoking or not. My poor mother suffered every cigarette. The radicality of this position was the awareness they had of the need of a child to learn to judge in accordance with the ultimate question of happiness in my own life, to learn to compare my truest desires with everything around me. My father always insisted that he could never prepare us with the answers to all the questions we would face in life, but rather hoped to show us that through the method of truly responding to the question, does this make me happy, we could respond to anything. There was a thing my mother always did that has stuck with me, bothered me really, ever since I can remember. She would come home after visiting some neighbor and exclaim, that, exclaim to us that a miracle had happened. She said it with such sincerity and joy that I fell for this trick for years. <clears throat> she, 
She would then explain something to the effect of how she had just met the neighbor down the street and they had talked about some enormous challenge they happened to be facing and that they would now be coming over for dinner and that they were gonna give us their trampoline. <laughs> we went through tons of trampolines. <clears throat> I don't think I'm alone in thinking that miracle is a bit of an overstatement, but over and over again, she would come home and do this to us. For her, life was a constant miracle. We'd come back home after school and she would begin recounting the miracles of her day. They're all stories of people she had met. She would start the story with a miracle happened today and end with, in Italian, come bello il mondo, come grande Dio, how beautiful is the world and how great is God. You have to be either crazy or see something so much more in life to be that way. I, as a kid, concluded she was crazy. <laughs> but the sheer force of attraction in the way she looked at life drew an enormous number of people to her, including us. She made no sense in my mind, asked questions you're not supposed to ask, interacted with people when you're supposed to just wave, and never once failed to see a person as a miracle. In looking at my mother, the judgment of life was clear and simple. Life is beautiful, life is given. When I eventually went off to college, I lived at home and commuted to school. When my father would see me leaving in the evening to go to a party, he would remind me, he would remind me nothing good happens after midnight. The point again was not the rule. There's nothing magical about midnight, I think. The point was the need for things to be good. The point was for him to put his need for things to be good in front of me and challenge my freedom. After many wasted nights, I would feel so bad coming home with these words ringing in my ears and thinking to myself, was this good? The next, night after, the next morning after such nights, on a Saturday morning after having partied, I would be up at 7 a.m. ready to work, ready to come back to the unity and affirmation of goodness we experienced in working at home. We worked all the time. There was always a project going on, usually to the dismay of my mother for all the incomplete projects from the previous few years. The passion for work was driven by my father. He never stopped at a crazy idea. In 2009, my father had the bright idea to have an end of summer party. We would cook for all of our friends and celebrate the end of summer and the beginning of a new year. Naturally, we couldn't just do the typical cookout with burgers and hot dogs. As he would say, if we're gonna do it, we might as well do it well. And the importance of a meal was never taken lightly. So he said, why don't we cook a whole pig? <laughs> the pig roast was born and became a yearly tradition until 2019. By the last year, the turnout surpassed 600 people. And we were cooking one whole pig and six whole hams, in addition to fresh mozzarella, homemade limoncello, and the list goes on. People would make plans to come in from out of town just for the pig roast. The pig roast was my father's understanding of work. For him, it was a chance to testify to the community of the beauty of life. And because of that foundation, we invited everyone to it. And it was clear. There were many things growing up that I was actually embarrassed to invite people to. Not the pig roast. There was a certainty of the universal attractiveness of that event that went beyond any of my concerns of embarrassment. Work was unity and passion for my father. Whether we were peeling hundreds of lemons for limoncello or building the set for the school play, work was his response to every aspect of life being supremely interesting. And working together was a possibility for unity and companionship in front of these interesting things. Working together to build something or make something, for me as a kid, growing up was a constant discovery of how fascinating and given things are. 
And there were countless others like me that came week after week to help our family can tomatoes, slaughter pigs, and peel lemons. Particularly, kids that everyone would, would say were the, the tough ones came week after week to be looked at by my father and mother and valued through working together. Work in this sense was an enormous point of unity for our family and an invitation that was readily accepted by so many others. Finally, I want to offer my experience of more recent discoveries in the relationship with my family to assure you that I'm not naive. Having moved out and away from home five years ago, I have seen more and more the inadequacies and limits of my parents in front of the new challenges and difficulties in life. This is an experience I have heard shared by many of my friends around my same age. My parents lost their house in the financial crisis. A few of us kids moved away and a variety of other challenges, probably pretty normal of aging parents and kids becoming adults. I don't mean normal in a diminutive sense. In fact, more than ever, the drama of life that my parents have always communicated to us is now more clear than ever before in the dramatic questions of their own life today. I've seen my father, uncharacteristically, go through the infinite heartbreak of feeling alone and hopeless, the heart of an entrepreneur in work and life reaching its limits. I've seen my mother fighting to continue to proclaim that goodness in front of the challenges of our family, her own health, and those of her parents growing old far away in Italy. I was recently listening to a talk by our Italian friend, Franco Nembrini, on a similar subject, and one really and one line really helped me to understand the drama I am facing now. He quotes the first line of the last canto of the Divine Comedy, Virgine Madre, Figlia del Tuo Figlio, Virgin Mother, Daughter of Thy Son. He goes on to talk about his own experience of discovering the resonance of this phrase in his own life. I've seen in myself, my older siblings, and many of my friends, the beginnings of this precise dynamic taste shape. Throughout my life, my parents went from being the absolute authority to testimonies of an immense goodness of life to real companions and friends in life. Now we are starting to see this role reversal in a sense. This return to a dynamic of relationship familiar from when we were younger, but in some way flipped. We start to become like fathers to our fathers. I am here to testify to all of you and especially to my parents that some good, that, that same goodness of life that they taught me, yeah, sorry, to, to my parents that, that same goodness of life that they taught me. It may seem vain to make such a bold claim, but it is simply the result of that greater goodness not residing in my father and mother, but rather in the experience of living the possibility for life to have meaning and for all of life to be a reaching towards this meaning. So my vanity has nothing to do with it because what I'm claiming is not that I've surpassed my parents by any means, but rather that the very passion they had in front of life that inspired me as a kid is precisely the need I now communicate back to them. I've now been married almost five years and a father of three. I often find myself in need of this approach in front of my own children. The rules and to-do lists are ever growing, but the anxieties that come from seeing my own limits in raising my children or being husband to my wife are set at ease by this memory that for me what was most meaningful in the way I was raised was that my parents were first and foremost searching for themselves. I'm recalled to my own need for happiness the desire that every moment be a miracle and that my life be full of asking. We often thank our parents for giving us life, as we should, but like my friend the astronomer said, what does putting food on the table mean if we cannot ask questions about the stars? More than anything, I would thank my parents for communicating to me through their own life the urgency and need that life be good and have meaning. Because in carrying this urgency with me now, my eyes are opened again to the promise of the beauty of life.
Thank you. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.